Welcome to another edition of Inside the Firm. I'm your host, Alex Gore, and I'm your host today because Lance is, you guessed it, fishing. Uh, just kidding, we are both on Thanksgiving break. So we have a special edition, uh, a conversation with Mike Michalowicz. It's absolutely amazing. You're going to love it. But before we get there, a couple quick announcements. First announcement is that if you're thinking about making more money, which you might be thinking about, check out architecttobuilders.com. If you're an architect, you already understand some of the process and you want more reward for the hard services uh, and the hard decisions and all the work that you do, think about building, becoming a builder. We lay out that process. We lay out what we do. It's not only helped us obviously increased uh, our leads of how much our firm is financially secure. It's helped us get architecture projects too. So go check out architecttobuilder.com. Also, if you aren't already using ArcCAD Spec Wizard, now is the time. Spec Wizard is a patented tool that allows you to specify a product in just three easy steps, all for free without even registering. Step one, find the product. Step two, select the product and the options that you need. And then step three, it generates a complete three-part CSI or CSC specification based on your selection. That's it. Again, Spec Wizard is a free to use and requires no registration. Just head over to arcat.com. That's A R C A T.com today and try Spec Wizard. We are also brought to you by Pella Luxury, a brand that you have never experienced luxury like this before. It's a collection of luxury division uh, and it's a conversation starter. They're the pioneers in the industry who provide window and door solutions to discerning architects, the building industry, and beyond. They have decades of experience creating things no one else in the world is creating. And a collection of brands are brought together to complement and build on one another. They don't push beyond the limits, they set them. Explore PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm. Go ahead and visit that, PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm, just to see what they're doing. Also, your visits help us out. And I hope some of our conversations help you out. And now we'll go to one of those conversations. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm, Monday Morning Coffee Edition. I'm your host, Alex Gore. I'm here with Mike Michalowicz, author, entrepreneur, launched and sold two multi-million dollar companies, former columnist for the Wall Street Journal, popular TED Talk speaker, and the author of many books. We will get into uh, at least some of them. Mike, welcome to Inside the Firm. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this interview. Yeah. Uh, my first question is, what was your first book and, and why did you decide to write it? Because you were probably in, in obviously business first. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started my first company right out of college, a few years after college, but I have been an entrepreneur for my entire adult life after you know, school. By the way, I never, I never grew up like desiring to be an entrepreneur. No one in my family, my immediate family is, just kind of fell into it. And in the beginning of the entrepreneurial journey, I, I realized that fear actually is a great motivator. Like fear will get you up at five in the morning and work until five the next morning because you have to survive. But over time, you better start applying strategy. You know, fear can get you so far before the stress and stuff kills you figuratively and then ultimately, literally, I, I assume. And so um, I... I wrote my first book as I was reflecting back on my entrepreneurial journey uh, of really questioning what I did was right and this countless things I did wrong and how to restructure it. Uh, the first book was called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. It was an edgy title at the time. Um, now titles are way more edgy than that. Yeah. And, and, and it built a little bit of a cult following, I think because of its edge and its rawness. And um, fast forward, uh, I, I've now, I've devoted my life to being an author for the last 15 years. And that's my intention for the rest of my life is studying what makes entrepreneurship successful, what makes the journey easier and uh, resolving all the, the things that are impedances to our growth and success. Yeah. Um, actually, the first thing I wrote, which wasn't necessarily published, was it was called the toilet paper. So in college, we would just write articles and then stick them on the in the stalls. <laughs> That's awesome. So that people get toilet paper. I love that. Yeah. Um, what I think you're absolutely right that fear motivates and also entrepreneurs. The best word that I had 
in growing a business is someone needs to be a catalyst. And sometimes fear can be that, that catalyst. Yeah. What was some of those things that you feared? You're in a total different place in which you started, but a lot of people are in that beginning place or like to look at business anew and always kind of have that fire in their, their, their butts. Yeah. What were those initial struggles that you had that you were trying to work out with that first book? So I think like the, the greatest day before you start your business, uh, the greatest day of actually an entrepreneur's career is the day before they start their business. It's a better way to phrase it. And that, you know, we have, I had these dreams, these aspirations, like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be a billionaire because I'm running my own business. And I saw the stories on all the cover of the magazines, like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg or Sarah Blakely. And I was like, oh, I'm the next one of them. That's, they did it. They started just like me. Um, but, but the reality starts the next morning when the phone isn't ringing, no one knows I exist. I'm now trying to get clients and they're like, no, not interested. The, the people that uh, told me this is a great idea, like, oh my God, I would totally buy that. Totally don't buy that. And so that was this, this brutal wake up call. Um, there is a lot of grind and hustle that's necessary in those early stages. You, you are, for many of us, when you start a business, you are the business. I didn't have investment capital. Uh, I put my own money in it, but really the money ultimately was just to survive off of the, the little savings I had. I put quote unquote into the business, but I was extracting that money back out just to pay for a food bill whenever I could. So that money was just trying to give me a little bit of runway. Um, ultimately I needed strategy. I needed a vision. I needed, um, I needed to not do all the work myself. The, the hustle and grind I found actually is a, a big line of bull. It's great in the beginning, but it's not a way to scale or sustain a business. So in the toilet paper entrepreneur, when I wrote that book, it was for entrepreneurs going through this journey for the first time, or maybe their umpteenth time, but never got past that brutal startup component and implementing strategy. The interesting thing too, as a business owner is uh, the more you do the work to grow your business, the more you become entrenched in the business and the harder it is to extract yourself. So I know businesses that hit, they, they see it as a ceiling. They said, oh, I hit a $500,000 in revenue ceiling or a million dollars, whatever the number is, but they hit a ceiling where they can't grow anymore. And like, I don't know why it's not growing because I did everything to get us here. And the lesson is staying entrenched in the business, doing all the work will grow to a certain point until you personally are capped. And when you're capped, you can't grow any further. So pretty early on, we got to start extracting ourselves from the business that we want to uh, grow the business through hustle and grind, but very quickly start removing ourselves from doing the work and becoming much more strategic in our, in the stuff we're doing and, and bringing people in to, to actually do the doing that's necessary. You know what I feel like the hardest of that? And uh, I reviewed some of your books and there's hopefully one I'll mention on. Um, it's kind of like the third step and I'm 10 years in, I'm like, oh, we finally did that after 10 years <laughs> in. Yeah. Um, but one of the hardest things is, okay, when you're starting a business, you're making mistakes, but you don't even know that you're making mistakes because no one's there to kind of point it out and you're, right. you're just learning. When you start handing off the business, the hardest thing is like after you review or see some of the stuff, like, oh, like I wouldn't have made that mistake or I wouldn't have done it that way. And you have to be comfortable with that. It, it's their growing pains, but you get to feel it too. Um, yeah. and, and how you manage that is, it, it's like, it's a whole nother level. Um, oh, it's brutal and it never goes away. We're uh, right now launching a new book. I, I wrote a children's book and this is the first time I'm not involved in a launch whatsoever. And I'm sitting here, I'm just biting my fingernails. I'm like, oh, that's not right. That's not gonna work. But A, that's a learning experience. And to your point too, it's not really right or wrong, it's my way. So as I build my businesses, I simply define a path that works for me. That's the, the groove I've made. So I expect that the only way to grow a business is that way. But honestly, a business can grow successfully in many ways. The ultimate thing we should measure is simply the outcome. Like, oh, this is what we want to achieve, but the path to get there, there's so many different ones. Yeah. Um, you know, grooves do become ruts. And if we keep on going the same way, it becomes a pattern and, and that will actually prevent our growth. So the transition phase is hard, but one, hack I figured out for myself was I used to consider myself a superhero for my business. Not that I use those exact words, but I definitely saw myself that way. I could swoop in and fix anything. And I've changed that to a super visionary. 
And that reframing has been significant for me that my role in service our company is far superior of, of trying to project, anticipate and plan than it is in fixing yet another problem. Ultimately superheroes leave a wake of destruction behind themselves anyway. And every time I would swoop in and fix something, uh, I would destroy confidence in my employees who are actually working on that stuff. Uh, I would, I would circumvent the, my own systems. I tell us that we have to follow. Now there's a lot of cleanup work. And uh, by transitioning to some, I'm a supervisionary, anytime we're not achieving a standard that I anticipate we would achieve, my job is to work on the systems um, to coach our people uh, to, to get us there, but not to quote unquote fix it. Yeah. That's one of the main kind of themes I've seen in your book. And the main thing that I feel like a lot of people need is, is kind of directions and, and guide rails and some framework. Um, so yeah. Lance and I, we teach at CU. And one of the reasons we did is there's this computer program that's kind of hard to get your head around um, in, in architecture. So we said, well, what if we bring all the office resources that a firm would normally have that they don't like to give away because they build up these systems and stuff and then just bring them to the students from the beginning? Because what they start with is absolutely junk, like the out of the box yeah. program stuff. Yeah. And I always, and then, and then after we design, t- teach them to use it, let them do their own visionary path within this system. And I love when it's at least two students uh, a semester where it's like, oh, that's better than, than I could even do. Like that's better oh, wow. than, 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 you know, like my design, they just, the, these shapes and, and what they're doing is amazing. Um, I like that. It, so I kind of want to start off with what I think is one of, for me, one of your most intriguing uh, concepts, which is the pumpkin plan. Mm. Um, it's a book. It's called A Simple Strategy to Grow a Remarkable Business in Any Fields. Um, and to me, the, well, in the book, there's kind of three main principles. You can expand on this, but plant the right seeds, weed yeah. out the losers, and nurture the winners. And I believe, so Don Miller is one of my favorite authors and podcasts. Oh, me too. I love his work. He is so amazing. And I can't remember if he put this on this book or if it was on a, di- a different book, but his review was, Mike is a genius. And I was like, that's enough of an endorsement right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He did that for, I think it was for Get Different. Um, he's great. He is so great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so how did you come up with that? And that analogy it, it is so perfect. Yeah. So it actually came from a mentor of mine. I've worked with business coaches throughout all my businesses. I've now owned um, eight or nine companies over my tenure. And um hired a business coach right away with my first business, which was in computer systems. And he sat me down one day and he was, uh, I was struggling to grow. I I was actually telling him about my, I've never worked so hard in my life and yet it's not growing. And that's when he's like, we got to hit the farm. I'm like, what the F are you talking about? He's like, I'm going to show you uh, a technique in biomimicry. That wasn't the exact words he used. Basically the concept is something that nature has figured out. She spent a billion years figuring that out. That works in nature, probably can be translated to a uh, application in our personal lives or in our business lives. So he showed me uh, pumpkin farming, but specifically colossal pumpkin farming. And so what these farmers have done is they applied certain simple techniques that would influence the growth of pumpkin to a magnitude of, or 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times the natural growth of a pumpkin. And as I was studying, it's like, oh my gosh, I now can see the parallels. A couple of the key elements are, you know, planting the seed is the idea is these pumpkin farmers will identify seeds that have the most potential growth by examining the seed. They will then pick a seed that matches their climate, the soil content. You can grow colossal pumpkins in the most Northern parts of Canada, the most Southern parts of Mexico and everywhere in between. Um, but it requires a different seed because the environment's different. The other thing it did was, which I thought was fascinating was when a pumpkin starts having colossal growth, they, defend it by removing other pumpkins off the vine. And the translation for, for entrepreneurs is when we start getting traction somewhere, it's very common to say, well, what else can I do? I should also start this organization. I can upsell here. Um, I, I can offer more to our clients. We need to diversify. But interestingly, faster growth comes from specificity by focusing on offering one thing and removing everything else. You grow by saying no. So, those are some of the key elements I was learning from farmers that translated to businesses. And, and one thing I think that makes me 
a little bit unique as an author is uh, I also operate my own businesses and apply all these systems to my own businesses as guinea pigs um, in advance to even finalizing the research. So I'm working on a book right now about how, what makes employees act like owners in a business. Well, I started that work probably four or five years ago, and uh, we are deploying those techniques for over the last few years in our own businesses and finding some of these ideas have extraordinary impact. Some of the ideas are duds, and then we're, we're going to use the best stuff and, and put that in my next book. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One, what was that first business that you were referencing? And then I'll first, it was called Olmec Systems, my first company, and it was a, a network integration company. We, we set up computer networks. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I would love, I love that idea of basically um, having employees act like owners. What, what are you, what are you learning? What, um, I don't even know where to go with this question, but I, yeah, like I can give you a couple of the insights that are yeah. really interesting. Um, it's kind of the little tidbits, but so here's a couple of things. Um, if you want employees to act like an owner, one technique is actually hire owners. And that's what we've done here is we have a few people that are uh, entrepreneurial, but don't really know how to get started and they're full intent to start their own business. So we're just part of the journey and the way they are integrated into the company is different. This isn't just a job. This is an internship for their own company. So their engagement is much more thorough and throughout. Now, it's really hard to find people like that. They're the exception. Most people, I would say about 97% of the population is actually just looking for a good job with a good company. So if you want someone to be like an owner, there's 3% of the population you can kind of try to draw from. But you know, how do you address the other 97%? The most fascinating insight we've gotten, and I was interviewing, this is actually just a few weeks ago, a company in um, Texas, a barbecue house, and heard a common thread with another company I interviewed two years ago that had the same result. It's it's assigning ownership, and I'm doing air quotes here, ownership over specific things. What's going on I interviewed two years ago was a landscaping company. What they noticed, and it's a big one, like they got like 50 to 100 employees. They do a lot of work. And what they noticed is that the guys would pull up with their truck to put mulch on the ground or something, and they would throw the wheelbarrow off the edge of the truck and break a handle and whatever. And their gloves were getting torn apart within a day or two. The owner noticed that, you know, his equipment was getting really beat up on and just off a lark, he started to sign names to the actual equipment. So if I was his landscaper, he put Mike on the handlebar with the wheelbarrow and uh, Mike, my name would be written on the gloves. The wheelbarrows were no longer being damaged. People were gently taking them off the trucks now. The gloves that only last a few days now are lasting almost a month. It was unbelievable. And the only change was people had a name on it. There's a psychological association when, when I have ownership over something that I give care to it. It's kind of like leasing a car or renting a car at Hertz versus your own car at home. Which one do you drive more aggressively? <laughs> you know, probably the Hertz rental because it's, we don't have possession over it. But by simply assigning a name, uh, it changed things. Taking this a step further, I interviewed this barbecue house in Texas, uh, and it was called, it's called uh, I think it's called Texas Smokehouse Barbecue in Hunt, Texas. Uh, the owner Stephen was was sharing what he did was uh, one day his employees there's a lot of turnover, particularly with this COVID crisis. Like it's hard to get uh, wait staff and so forth. Mm -hmm. But uh, what they were having problems with when their their soda fountains or something like that, and that was just always disorganized. So he asked one of his colleagues and said, Hey, I want you to own this. Like anytime there's a problem with the soda fountain, this is your, your task. You are the soda fountain owner. And um, that person started maintaining it and it was excellent. That same employee came back to Steven and said, Hey, um, could I also own the, they also sell liquor there. Can I own the, the liquor uh, display? Cause I just don't like the way it looks. He's like, absolutely. That improved. What we started doing was assigning ownership to different employees by designating areas and saying, this is your area. He started putting people's names on it. So this is Mike's soda fountain. And um, he had a bus boy, a new person come in and say, I want to own the back deck. So this, this back deck has like 10 or 15 tables. They have um, musicians come in and perform back there. A lot of business happens back here. And Steven said, yeah, you can own it. It's meticulous ever since. The, the, the utensils are lined up. It's always sweeped and cleaned. Now, it doesn't mean the owner is responsible to do all the work. It simply means that they're the final point of kind of checkpoint. So there's other people assembling, 
but the bus boy, which is his primary job, walks back there every hour and says, is this, is my space looking right? And uh, by giving small tranches of ownership, uh, both figuratively or physically, um, he's been able to scale this. Fast forward, this restaurant, they started this about two years ago, is a destination restaurant in, in Hunt, Texas. People drive from San Antonio two hours away just to go to a restaurant. I thought when we were just about to hang up the phone, he shared the most fascinating story. He said, you have to understand my staff is from Hunt. This is a quote unquote, no name town that no one knows about. A lot of these folks grew up here and there's no pride necessarily associated with Hunt. It's the big city, San Antonio. That's the cool place. He says, but we're changing that. We've become the destination. We're pulling people out of San Antonio because my staff um, feels like they're finally representing our town the way it needs to be represented. They have such pride in our community because we've become the destination. It's like, wow, that's the ultimate definition of ownership. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense too. Um, because I emphasize with that 3% to 97%. I was working out, actually building this building. And uh, one of the plumbers said, he goes, you know, like, I don't want to be an owner. I don't want more responsibility. I want to do my job and go home. And right. I, I, I honestly never understood that. Right. The, the last couple of weeks, so I've been working weekends and, and finishing up this project. I'd be like, man, it'd be nice to go home at five and just, you know, play with the kids, turn it off. Yeah, all, and all the worries go away. So it, so coming from their perspective now, you can do so with empathy, but still help align maybe what they want with also the businesses that, like you said, is like you don't own maybe paying for the milk or whatever comes into the fo- or the soda to the soda machine, but this is still your, so, you know, the way it's cleaned and all that. Uh, any examples for service-based businesses such as let's be selfish architecture firms, um, uh, tech firms, anything like that, that you've come across? Yeah. So kind of in more virtual deliveries, I haven't interviewed companies specifically, but we're testing now. And one thing we found is that we can put ownership over processes. Um, it is always nice if possible, it seems to have a physical space associated with it. So um, even if we have a virtual department, can you have a space at someone's home that has all the architectural plans displayed or maybe or maybe because it's all virtual and when you do planning and so forth, it's all online. And you simply have pictures of your customers that um, are in the different stages. They, they're specking out what they want. Uh, they're, they get the deliverable of the architectural plan. Now there's the construction implementation. And then tell employees, take ownership over, um, you're taking ownership over the deliverables. We, we commit to getting these architectural plans by a certain, done by a certain time. Your job is to ensure that we commit to our, we deliver on our promises. And every time uh, a project moves on to the phase where now it's in your ownership, we're going to actually mail you a physical picture of this client. You have these 10 clients on your shelf. It's, it's a, almost a form of gamification, but when there's a tactile experience, a physical experience, we can see ownership over that. There's a propensity for most of us to organize and sort. So when we can, can apply a tactile experience to whatever virtual elements going on, it seems to bring about much greater degrees of ownership. Yeah. I wondered too, just an idea that I might try out. Um, I wonder if this would help. So people are managing multiple projects and it might be a dud idea, but these projects, obviously they have meetings, but on their project task list, you know, there's the name of the project and all that is to literally have a printout of the customers, you know, that they can have on their desk and like, Oh, you're managing these eight people here. They are. Because one thing that I got to constantly at least be following up in is, is, Hey, did you talk to them this week? You know, did you, um, is, is it on top of mind to, to communicate and coordinate, yeah. um, and, and making something physical and then connecting it to a person might be helpful. Yeah, um, totally. It's, it's, it's greater than just you, you own this and, and it's, it's very ambiguous. Yeah. It also happens in that process of having a list is you're prioritizing. There's that saying, you know, it gets measured, gets done. Um, the mistake I see businesses make, and we are, I have been so guilty of this, of over-assigning responsibility, saying, you got to do this and that and that and that, and, and just kind of pile stuff on. And people don't know this sense of priority. There's a concept I was just reading about called thrash state, which is a, a computer term. And a computer can get into a thrash state when it's, it's overtasked. It's really interesting. 
What a computer does to optimize things is if I give it one task, it goes into cache, which is like a memory area, and the processor starts pinging that information and processes it. If I give it two tasks, now that cache, which has limited uh, capacity, kind of divides up evenly these two elements, and the computer starts pinging between the two, working a little bit on this, a little bit on that. It happens in nanoseconds, so to us, it looks mm -hmm. like it's multiprocessing and it's still doing it linearly. But as you put more and more tasks on it, it divides up into smaller and smaller segments. There becomes this one point, the thrash state, where the computer, its optimal choice is simply to keep on choosing. So it looks at one piece, it does nothing with it. Right. It's faster just to jump to the next piece and evaluate it and jump to the next piece. And all it does is get in this evaluation phase with no progress, no productivity. And what's interesting also about a thrash state is a computer gets hung up here. Your computer just goes into a lockdown and it just, it doesn't know what to do. Uh, the only way out of it is to unplug the thing and restart. Uh, the other way is, and they now have scripts or intelligence, if you will, built in the computers, that if it's approaching a thrash state, it should immediately stop everything and just pick the next one thing, whatever it is, and work on it. A thrash state, you would think that the computer gets overwhelmed, so it starts, this productivity starts fading, but it doesn't. It actually cliffs off. The productivity uh, is going along, all of a sudden it just gets overwhelmed, it just stops. But we see this happen in, in human processing. We can overtask a person or give them too many responsibilities. And now it just becomes pinging between, am I doing this, am I doing this, am I doing this? And they're actually not doing anything, they're just checking in on it, and we see this cliff collapse. So another way to give someone ownership is actually to reduce the responsibility. Narrow it down to the one most important thing, that one next thing that has to get done, let them manage that, and often that results in greater productivity. Not only do I see this in business, um, I also see it in government a lot. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and so in business, you know, how we like to solve that is, is hire new people, train them up, you know, but I also think that we could prioritize and, and, and execute to use some Jocko Willink uh, language there. But man, the, the government, uh, I'll trash on them because they are just doing a terrible job, Boulder County, <laughs> planning departments uh, and building departments yeah. will not hire will not hire. So all of a sudden, like we will get, it was like, you didn't even look at the plants. You just sent them back with generic comments that don't even apply, you know, like, um, uh, so that's interesting. And I think it, I think, I mean, there's a lot of gems in here, but maybe that's just hitting home to me because we're just getting so busy, but yeah, you're experiencing it right now. Yeah. And I would argue that may not be a thrash state. Their incentives may be different. It may be out of alignment with productivity. The, you know, there's these hidden incentives um, to delay and procrastinate and not do things because that may be longevity in the job. Um, you know, it's in the best interest for, I don't know politics that well, but it seems in the best interest of, of a politician to sp speak the words that the contingency wants to hear, but not necessarily deliver on it. The second you deliver on it, what do you do now? So speak it so people get riled up just kind of scratch it, but don't really do it. And then speak it again. And it actually may result in, in longer longevity in your quote unquote job. So there's this incentive that works counter to promise. And so you, you see that it's not just in politics, you see it everywhere, but we, we have to ask ourselves, where is the true incentive? What, what's really of service to us as the individual? What's our real motive here? Yep. Aligning with this, there's a concept uh, circling in my head and I want to get your feedback on it. There was just a little YouTube clip of Steve Jobs. I don't know what year it is. So what he said about Apple at that point maybe isn't true at Apple at this at this point in time. Yeah. But essentially, he said uh, we basically don't have committees at Apple, and this goes to what you were saying about uh, assigning responsibility and ownership. It's like we have heads of departments and we have groups working on stuff, but we don't have committees. Yeah. And relating it to the government has committees and and the incentives is. <laughs> Man, and this is what I've been telling people because they're like, why is the government acting this way? Or why, is the, why are the rules like this? And I said, sometimes systems can be dumber than people. Systems can be dumber than people because you cannot create a whole human brain and all the right. different deviations inside of a planning code checklist. So what I, we don't really have, we only have 15 people here. So we really don't have committees. But when I listen to that, I thought, well, I might think as an owner, as I get bigger, I need to implement more and more committees. And I feel like that might be the wrong path. Not that I have, you know, but it's a logical step. You could think that you're more professional that way. 
I think it might just be more ownership. And if you need to bring more people onto your team to get that done, that's fine. But a committee, I feel like is just going to have to please everyone. So then you make something that pleases no one. I think committee could be defined as ambiguous responsibility. I was saying at my home office uh, from George Washington, and I'm going to paraphrase it. He basically said he found that when a task is assigned to one person, uh, when one person's responsible, it often gets completed. When two people are assigned, it results in finger pointing. And when three people are assigned, it will never get done. And I've noticed that myself is that the incentive, the motivation, when I am responsible, well, the measurement's very clear. I have to get this done, or I have to at least be overseeing it and engaging other people to get done, but I'm, I'm where the buck stops. When there's two people, um, if I get the work done, there is a demotivation in that the other person may get recognition for the work I did. And I don't want them, I want to get the recognition. Uh, so there, there's inherent demotivation to get work done. And when the work fails, you can't take that responsibility, point it at the other guy. So you'll see this and you see it in departments, like the sales department says, oh, the uh, service department sucks. That's why we can't sell. They're not delivering. The service department says the sales uh, department sets us up for failure. It's mm, finger yeah. pointing. It's, it's easier to point at both sides. And so that's, that's a form of committee. Uh, and then three people, forget it. Then it's just a round robin because no one knows what the freak is going on. Um, so you, I try to avoid that, but, but it's inherent to even small business. You know, collectively, we have 23, 24 employees now. We're a micro business and um, it's the same experience here. Even though we don't have committees, we don't assign dual responsibilities. Sometimes just in the leadership, there's a duality in, in direction. One person says, okay, here's what we need to do. And another person unaware of what that other person said, here's what we need to do. And now there's a, a behind the scenes amb ambiguity happening. So it, it naturally forms. We have to be very disciplined at preventing that, that dispersion of responsibility. It's just, it's just inherent. It happens. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, jumping to another concept of yours, which is also a book, it's called Profit First, uh, Transforming Your Business from a Cash-Eating Monster to a Money-Making Machine. Nice subtitle there. Uh, nice, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the flip, and, and flips also a lot of times help people relate it to themselves or think about it differently. So the, um, normally it's sales minus expenses equal profit. Um, and, and what you were talking about uh, is sales minus profit equals expenses. And one example that I have is, um, let's just take the, we do architecture and construction. Um, and, and I was out in the field doing some stuff. And at any time, I can find a reason to buy another tool. A lot of times, you know, there is this thing, the right tool for a job. So but then there is also that tool is $300 and it's 15 minutes there, 15 minutes back. And this is supposed to be done in, in literally two days. Um, man, maybe a hammer and a, a wrench will work. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. <laughs> and, 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 then, and there's less, less right, right? Where do you store the equipment? Yeah, but that's yeah. a natural tendency. I, I uh, was an owner in a manufacturing business for a few years before I exited. And uh, the company continues on. It's an extraordinary little business. And the, the founder, his name is Paul Scheider, um, who's just an extraordinary human. Uh, he used the not today rule. So what he would do is if he had to buy a piece of equipment, um, he would say, okay, I'm going to buy this, but I'm just not going to buy it today. How do we get by one more day without that purchase? And uh, with that started triggering this innovation. And he would, every day he'd say, well, not today, not today. So these, these he would allow himself the, the excitement of getting that new toy um, without actually getting the new toy. And he would delay purchases for months and in, in, in many cases never make the purchase because he found an alternative um, approach, which was more cost-effective and gets better results. Yep. When, when I wrote Profit First, um, a study uh, presented itself that just blew me away, came from US Bank. They ran a survey of their audience. Uh, the SBA was involved, I believe, in some capacity. And they identified that 83% of small businesses, in the US there's 250 million small businesses. SBA defines that as a company of $25 million in revenue or less. 83% of businesses are surviving check by check. And the definition of that is these businesses don't have enough inbound cash flow currently to cover rent, employee pay, payroll, let alone the owner pays themselves. So they start compromising. Usually the owner cuts themselves out of the loop um, and justifies it. What, what blew me away is of all the people I've ever interviewed, uh, and I don't 
know the count anymore, but it's a lot of people that own businesses. I've asked them, why do you start? And I always hear the two common refrains. Refrain one is financial freedom. I don't want to worry about bills. That's why I want to be an entrepreneur. The second thing is personal freedom. I want to have control over my schedule. I want to be able to do what I want when I want. And of those businesses, almost none of them have either. Right. It, it, it was crazy to me. You start a business for financial freedom. You don't have it. You start for personal freedom. You're working your ass off. That's why I wrote Profit First. It resolves the financial freedom component. And it, it's a simple behavioral management system. Sales minus expense equals profit is a very logical approach and it's out there, but it is fundamentally flawed in that it does not address human behavior. It's human behavior. When something comes last, we, we consider it insignificant. You, you, you never meet someone that's sick and says, I've decided to start putting my health last. But at first, uh, I love my family. I put them first. I don't say I love my family. I put them last. But we say that profit comes last. In fact, it's even in our vernacular. We say that profit's the bottom line. It's the year end. It's the final take. All these phraseologies say, don't worry about it today. And we don't. And that's why businesses struggle over and over. In profit first, I just propose a flip of the formula. It's sales minus profit equals expenses. And what I'm saying in execution is every time revenue comes in, Take a predetermined percentage as profit, hide it away from your business, allocate it somewhere else. And now the remainder is what you truly have left to operate your business. If you want to have a 20% profit, take 20%. Now there's 8% left. That's what you must run your business off of to achieve that 20% profit. Yep. I also feel like then it fo focuses you when you're making those decisions to buy that tool to invest in whatever, or even a lot of times when you don't do profit first, um, because you're working so hard, you'll, you'll treat yourself to... Uh, who knows, it, it, it's a dinner expense or something like sure. that or a lunch expense. And then all of a sudden you still have zero at the end, but it was because that money was in the account that you spent it rather than hiding it away from yourself. Um, another there's comment- a, there's, a bias, just, uh, there's a bias, I think is a, a significant, is that when, when any resource pools that whatever the immediate desire is, we'll look at that pool of that resource as it's available in its entirety for that activity. So for example, I wanna go out to dinner, I look at my one account, it has $500 in there. I'm like, oh, I can have a $500 dinner. <laughs> I don't, it's natural uh, that I don't account for, well, what about tomorrow, what about paying rent? What about paying all these other expenses? We, there's this immediacy effect. So what we do with profit first is we flip the formula, but we set up multiple accounts at your bank and there's a reason it has to be there, but multiple reasons, um, multiple accounts at your bank with the intended, intended use of that money um, identified in this, in the title of the account. So it would be very atypical, but you could have one for meals out. And, um, if you had that account, we would funnel a percentage of the income into there. Now, when you're out for your meal, you look at the meals out account and you know exactly what's available. We pre-allocate money to its intended use. And then we work in with the confines of what's available there. Yep. And I, I feel like this applies, uh, not only to business, not the specific concept, but the concept of what are your order of operations? Because you mentioned health and it's like, oh, you don't put health last. But actually that's probably a lot of problems in America is that you do put health last. Oh, totally. You, you put it last until you go to the doctor and then you, you hope for a pill rather than- That's correct. What is my uh, health first bank account? Meaning what is my jog schedule or, you know, whatever. That's, million, that's exactly how it works. Yeah. It, it, it could be a million different ways suited to a, a million different people. But um flipping the switch and, and seeing what is your priorities first and then seeing, are you even accounting for that? Or are you using, are those all your leftovers after your work, after you watch TV, after Netflix and TikTok and all those other stuff? Because I fall into it. I'm sure you fall into it a, a little bit. For sure. I won't speak for you. Um, but, but man, it, it's hard when you want to come lay on the couch and, and all of a sudden YouTube has those little stupid shorts now. And you're like, where did 25 minutes go? Yeah, yeah, I just wasted my life. Yeah, yeah and, and when it comes to health and exercise, um, for most people, if you're gonna effectively prioritize it, you do it first thing in the morning. So every morning is kind of that fresh start. Um, it's that morning routine that seems for most people to be most effective because at the end of the day, then when we start kind of drifting and, and there's the I'll do it later syndrome, but uh, there's no interruptions in the beginning. So that account, if you will, is the first thing we're funding is in this case, a health account. And that's how it works in profit first is when revenue comes in, what most people do is it goes toward expenses. You know, thousand dollars deposits came in today. Great, I have a thousand dollars expenses. That's the YouTube shorts. But what we do with profit first is a thousand dollars comes in, 
the very first thing is the profit allocation happens, the health account. We also allocate money for owner's compensation, pay the owner, who's inevitably the most important employee in almost all businesses I've interviewed. Uh, taxes, right? There's gonna be a tax liability associated with it. And then you see what's available for expenses. But I also hear from people go, they go to me, Mike, but I don't have enough money to pay my bills. If you don't have enough money to pay your bills when you pre-allocate money to the healthy parts of your business, that's your business telling you, you have an unhealthy amount of bills. We can't afford this. This is not sustainable. Mm. So we need to cut expenses, uh, increase margin by, uh, by increasing prices, but we, we have to get the gap there. So our business actually starts speaking to us, if you will, the second you implement this system and you're going to make hard decisions now, as opposed to irreconcilable decisions in the future where you just have to tank your business because it was never healthy the entire time. I think it does make you have uh, hard decisions. Has anyone asked you, or maybe you address this in the book, let's say it's, it's a physical store and let's say you're, you pick something that's too expensive for your revenue. Maybe you haven't proved out your system and you literally rented a place in a mall rather than, yeah. you know, uh, someplace else. Is there, Hey, okay. I understand that what you just said about your expenses, but you need to put maybe a timeline on it. If it doesn't get fixed in two to three months, you can't afford that store. Correct. So, so there's certain expenses that we incur that are called fixed costs. By the way, there really is no such thing as a fixed cost. If, if you have zero dollars to spend and you can't pay something, it can't keep collecting from you. You can't take blood from a stone. So um, most things people that say are fixed are really negotiable. So uh, if, if you're, you do this model and you already made some extreme expenses, we may have to unwind this. It's, it's some hard conversation you may have with other people saying, I was stupid, but um, I'm not going to be able to pay rent in the, you know, at this sustained rate because in three, four months, I'm just gonna be out of business. So I know I committed to a full year or five years of this, but within three months, I'm not gonna pay a penny. So we renegotiate right now so I can sustain and be here for five years. Or can you get a tenant, you know, can I leave so you can get a tenant here that can sustain you for five years? But it's, this is not gonna work now that I ran the system. So it, it starts forcing us hard conversations. What most people do without a profit first system or something like it is they simply say, ah, every dollar comes in, it has to go toward rent. And they start prioritizing rent and uh, now the business is going to tank because we're not focusing on caring for customers, buying inventory at, at uh, the right prices to address margins and so forth. So those hard conversations will come out. Yes, you can give yourself some runway, but that money has to come from somewhere. So in that case, we often set up an account called a drip or a loan account. And that's basically saying, listen, I, I can't pay rent at my current rate. Within three months, if I don't turn this around, I have to leave. So how am I going to cover those three months? I want to make a personal loan to the business. Well, that goes into this loan account. So now we see that loan account funding the rent and it's dripping down very quickly. When that loan account hits zero, you're done. Now you've proven you can't get out. Or maybe you've turned it by then and the loan account isn't being pulled from anymore. Well, congratulations. You did afford yourself enough runway. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, speaking of priorities, you have another book called Fix This Next, which is uh, make the vital change that will level up your business. Um, a couple concepts in there, and we don't have to go deep into this, but one that I mentioned earlier that I, I just learned. So it's not this one. The first one is, you know, establish predictable sales, create yeah. permanent profit, which we mentioned, and then achieved organizational order, which again, 10 years into it, we've finally gotten to, nice. to, to that part. Um, but yeah, anything you want to mention about, about that concept? I just wanted to bring that up because again, it, it hit. Um, in this real world application. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. There's actually five different stages in Fix This Next. And what I found is most small businesses, again, I define a small business following the SBA guidelines. It's $25 million in revenue or less. Most small businesses focus on sales and almost sales exclusively. Any problem they have, they feel sales will solve it. And that's like, I equated uh, this hierarchy of needs for business to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's where it's derived from because there's absolute biomimicry parallels. And uh, that's like saying like, oh, I, I'm, I have, uh, my business is, is overweight or I'm overweight. I'm going to just breathe more to get there because of the base of Maslow's hierarchy is what's called physiological needs, like breathing. And uh, you, you can't sell your way to an efficient business. You can't breathe your way to weight loss. There, there's other components. Now, if you're not breathing, you will die. If you don't have sales, your business will suffocate. So we have to have a adequate amount, but more won't necessarily solve problems. In fact, it may amplify problems. You breathe more, you get dizzy. If, if you overbreathe, you hyperventilate. If you oversell, you've over obligated your business that can't deliver on its promises, actually dilutes your ability to deliver. 
and it causes more stress to the organization. It can become problematic. So it's almost like a, sh- a sugar rush. It's Maybe like a sugar like- rush. Yeah. Hey, we made the sale. And then next month, like, oh my God, this is devastating. I'm working my ass off and there's no money left because I have to spend more aggressively. Yep. But it relates so to weight to loss. Balance. Yeah. Sorry. Um, it relates to weight loss too. Um, oh, I, I crashed. Oh, so now I need a Mountain Dew or, or something else like that. And you're just, you're feeding the wrong, you're feeding your engine the, the wrong thing. You're the wrong way. You're yeah. compounding. And, and it's only a matter of time before it corrupts. The, the last thing I just want to share is the order level you talked about. Um, that the ultimate asset test for that, we call it the four week vacation. If the owner can leave a business for four consecutive weeks, a full physical and digital disconnect, that is the great asset test on the viability of the business independent of the owner. Most businesses need the owner and that is an viable business. The day the owner leaves or dies or wants to sell the business, the business starts to collapse because the owner's retiring and who wants to buy a business like that? But if a business can run in your absence for at least four weeks, it usually means the business can run into perpetuity that way, which now becomes a highly viable business. Uh, and and as, a, as a test, like when I travel, um, admittedly, I go to McDonald's every so often, focus on my health, but I'm a McDonald's guy. I can't sure. deny it. I started, nuggets. Asking, I started asking uh, the cashier, hey, is the owner here? I've gone to probably 30 to 50 McDonald's and ask, may I speak with the owner? Not once, not once has the owner ever been there. Uh, I remember one cashier says, oh, I haven't seen the owner in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. Um, they just came in to collect the profits and that was <laughs> it. That's a great definition of uh, an owner not being necessary for the daily operations. They're still doing stuff. They're they're strategizing, finding new uh, plans uh, for facilities. They're, they're, they're going to corporate and learning how to sell more through their stores, but they surely aren't, aren't operating the store. And that's what we should aspire to do in our business. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, what inspired or what was the catalyst for your most recent book? Why did you write Get Different? Marketing that can't be ignored. Yeah, so right. So that is, I just released that a couple of weeks back now as we're recording this. And um, it takes me about five to 10 years to write a book. Get Different took me seven years. Man, um, you I must be like 80 years old. <laughs> in par- okay, you answered it in parallel. Yeah, okay. yeah, I, yeah, I write in parallel. So I don't write one book every 10 years because uh, that would be 80 years. Um, I'm right now, I have four books in progress. One is, uh, well, one's just being released. One's on the verge of being completed. Uh, one's in, in final testing. And one is, is in what we call like a, an alpha state where we're just kind of playing around in different deployments. Um, so I'm constantly writing and, and I can get a book out every year to get different. About seven years ago, I was at a conference um, presenting and I, I asked the audience, I said, um, who hears better than competition? And these were all competitors of each other and they all raised their hands. I'm like, okay, so we're all better than each other. And I actually agree with that, that in some facet, every small business is better than their contemporaries because we respond faster. Maybe we were more thorough in our process. We care more. Uh, there's, there's a reason we're better. We're regionally closer. We're more accessible. So I said, if you're better um, and your prospects are hiring your alternatives, the competitors, that's of less service to them. Is that true? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, damn it. You have a responsibility then to market. They have to find you because it's the ultimate act of kindness is to be discovered if you're better. And I also asked another question, which was really revealing. I said, what percentage of your leads come in through like word of mouth? Is that your source? And like, yeah, yeah. hundred percent of my leads, 80% of the leads. One guy started pounding his chest. He's like, I don't even market. I get so many leads to my customers. I said, well, there's a risk here. You're at your customer's whim to market you. They may say, you know what, we're giving up and not doing it. And then you're in trouble. But the bigger thing is that means the customers believe in you so much that they're willing to, to refer you to the people they trust. They're willing to, to risk relationships with people they know just to give you business because they believe in you so much. They're carrying the marketing of your organization on your shoulder. I can't think of a bigger statement um, from anyone that you must market. They believe in you that much. And that became the inspiration is that we have a responsibility to market if we're better. And this is a way to do it that, that I think is the essence of effective marketing. And if our customers are referring us business, well, damn it, uh, we, we shouldn't be giving them the responsibility. We should be expanding that exposure ourselves. Are there any kind of marketing concepts that you see out there that you feel are maybe marketing the wrong way and you're trying to point them to a different way? Oh, totally. So, um, just to give us a framework of, of get different. I, I have a model called dad is an acronym differentiate, attract, direct is the three elements that must stand out. 
one thing that is the most common marketing faux pas is that we use the best practices of our industry. You know, everyone says, oh, you mail postcards. That's how you get exposure. I was just talking to auto shops yesterday. They said postcard mailers. I'm like, okay. So I get about one a week at my house of postcard mailers. I go in the garbage. Now you're giving me two a week. No, it's not going to work. There's a reason our mind, the base of our brainstem is a thing called the reticular formation. Its job is to ignore known stimuli that is of no value. Ignore most, almost everything, basically. The best example I can think of is the, is the hey friend email. Chances are, Alex, you've received an email started off with the words, hey friend. I've received that too. Yeah. Very first time I got an email started off with, hey friend, I was like, oh my God, like I have a friend who's so friendly. They don't even call me by my first name. They just call me yeah. a friend. Who is this friend? And then it's like, oh, this is bullshit marketing. Yeah. The second one, I've never paid it. I, you know, spam box for everything. Best practice is, hey friend, yet no one opens, hey friend. We all know it's spammable. So step one is don't do the best practice. That's become it's called habituated, meaning ignorable. Instead, do something that's unexpected. Our brain operates is when something unexpected presents itself out of context, something that doesn't make sense, our main mind lights up. If you've ever been in a yard and something squiggles in the grass, guarantee you're jumping and paying attention to that. And the reason our mind lights up is we have to evaluate, is this a threat? Is that a snake? Is it an opportunity? Someone drop a wad of cash and it's kind of rolling toward me? Or is it ignorable? Someone turn the hose on. So when different presents itself, we evaluate it. So the first thing is most people don't do different. They do best practices. That's a mistake. Do different. Second thing is it needs to be attractive. Attractive means it needs to speak to the audience. Different does not mean outrageous. I'm not saying wear you know, a Bozo the Clown, yucca, yucca uh, kind yeah. of costume. You, you won't win over prospects that way if it doesn't appeal to them. Now, if, if you're trying to promote your circus, maybe, yeah. But for most businesses, uh, dressing that way is actually repelling. So we have to understand our target audience and what would be different and attractive. Um, you see this often like on Facebook, you'll go and you'll see a person's a picture that looks like someone that's homeless or destitute or something. And, and it's like, click here and you click on it. And it's like life insurance. It's like, mm, okay, so this is a clickbait trickeration thing. It was different than what I was expecting. It evoked curiosity. That's our mind lighting up. But now it's incongruent with what you mm -hmm. positioned. I actually feel trapped here. That's not attractive. That's repelling. So that is risky. And then the other thing I see is people don't have a call to action. I call it a direct. And a, a direct is where we give people an action to take that is reasonable, but specific. Uh, I see on websites all the time, the, the call to action to learn more. Well, that's, that's unspecific. It's the whole reason I went to your website was to learn more. Now you're telling me to learn more. That's confusing. I see other people ask something that's not reasonable. They'll say like, you know, put down a $50,000 deposit so we can have that first consultative call. It's so absurd. We wouldn't do it. So we have to figure out what can we do? That's a transaction of sorts, not necessarily financial transaction, but some kind of exchange. You give me an email, I give you information, something that moves us toward the final um, transaction efficiently, but also safely for the customer. Absolutely. Uh, the first thing you're talking about was like, they just do the standard reminded me. So I was in a army battalion uh, and they're, and obviously they're not marketers, but their slogan <laughs> was we set the standard and I'm just <laughs> marching around doing you know, stuff. And I'm like, this is the terriblest slogan ever. Like the standard is horrible. Yeah, Every yeah. time you do a PT test, you try to exceed the standard. I'm like, someone needs to redo this. Yeah. <laughs> because this, this is not, you know, I'm sure they made it up in the forties or something like that. But, um, I, I just really related to that because I, I think some people think that that is the good way to go is to set the standard. It's like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Don't set the standard. Standard is very ignorable. S set the ex exception. Like, you know, we set the ex exception and that that becomes, uh, noticeable. When, when I was doing the research of this book, I found most people are simply aspiring to be better than the alternative uh, you know, I answer the phone in two rings, you answer the phone in one ring, you're better. But better isn't noticeable. Uh, what what gets noticed is something that is inconsistent. Um, Zappos use this when when you would purchase something, they would upgrade you to VIP status. How many companies have upgraded you to VIP status? Not many, unless you do a significant amount of business with them. But uh, Zappos would do it with the very first transaction and giving people this like sudden, like, oh my God, what, what's so special about me experience? And it built extreme loyalty. What can we do as inconsistent and exceptional compared to our contemporaries? And that inevitably brings about exposure.
Yeah. I, I think there's so many good ideas and so many lessons that apply in various stages of, or basically yeah. all stages, because you can always kind of relearn. You're always uh, redoing your business. If you had to recommend an order of, let's just say three of your books, mm. which ones first, second, and third, because they don't have to be in the order that you wrote them. Yeah, okay, yeah, of course. Yeah. So uh, it's a challenging question because I used to blurt out the three I was most enthusiastic about, but I think that's a mistake. I, I think we have to ask ourselves, what's the biggest problem we face in our business right now? Because if, if you're financially struggling, um, we got to fix that immediately. You could, you could market like crazy, but it's not going to fix that. So profit first would be the starting point. Most businesses don't know what their biggest struggle is. So fix this next is a tool to identify what you should work on. So if you don't know what your problem is, I would start off with fix this next. Um, then based upon the stage of a business, early stage business, uh, maybe pumpkin plan, which is a little more encompassing. And once you really know what that full specific problem is, we have efficiency problems or financial problems or lead generation. Then I pick the book accordingly, clockwork for efficiency, profit first for finances, get different for lead generation. Awesome. That was a, I'm, I'm glad you twisted that answer a little bit because that makes way more sense. Um, Anything else you want to touch on or, or leave the audience with? Yeah, I'll leave the audience with, with uh, something I've become acutely aware of. And um, I'm embarrassed that I, I didn't realize this until recent years. I, I supported and believed that small business was the backbone of the economy. And I would blurt that out just like everyone else saying, small business is the backbone of the economy. And I take that completely back. I was wrong. Small business is the economy. What I've noticed is... It's not it's just a backbone. It is a direct correlation between uh, the health of, of the global economy, um, of, of people's individual health, correlates to small business success. As small business is struggling, um, people struggle uh, disproportionately as compared to when Amazon has a bad day. So um, I just want to rally people around this. Like, you are a big deal. If you have eight employees or you are the only employee, if you have 80 employees or a handful, if you're a small business, your impact is extraordinary and necessary. We are, the globe is starving for your success. So I just want people to know you are a big deal. I hope these books and stuff are, are tools to help you in your journey in some small capacity. But uh, regardless if, if if you read a book or not, I'm just wishing you tremendous success because selfishly, we all need it. Awesome. And then uh, how to get a hold of you, how to check out your work, any handle. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll give you the place not to go to, which is mikemichalowitz.com. The reason I'm saying don't go there because Michalowicz is impossible to spell. Yeah. But there's an alternative. <laughs> there's an alternative. It's mikemotorbike.com. It's a nickname ah, back nice. in the, gra the grade school days. Yeah. I've never driven a motorcycle. So that's, there you go. But yeah. mikemotorbike.com. If you go there, um, all these books, free resources, you can, you can download all the book chapters for free. I just write for the Wall Street Journal. You can get those articles for free. Um, at mikemotorbike.com. Well, perfect. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. This has been fun. Thanks, Alex. All right, we're out. Rock and roll. Uh, cool. I got a 12 o'clock, so I got to hop right now, but thank you, brother. <laughs>